and our thanks to those online for your patience and trusting in God's goodness, even when nothing was coming through. One of our machines needed a gentle reboot, so I appreciate your patience that way. Today, discipleship keywords six in our series, Becoming a Reproducing Follower. And first section, what makes a disciple? It's right there in our marching orders. You can't ignore it. It's plunk in the middle of what Christ followers call the Great Commission. Jesus' parting instructions before his ascension at the close of Matthew's Gospel. What did he emphasize as he was about to withdraw his physical presence and move on up to his Father's right hand in glory? Was it to build buildings where we gather weekly out of sight of our neighbors? Was it to infiltrate our nation's political machinery and institute moral laws enforced by drastic penalties? Was it to set aside time each day hidden in the privacy of our home solely to engage in mystical practice at our own convenience, seeking ever richer spiritual ecstasy? No. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. What, what, what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Make disciples. What's a disciple? The Greek word means to be a disciple of one, to follow his or her precepts and instructions. The root verb means to learn, to increase in knowledge, and further to learn by use and practice, to be in the habit of, accustomed to. There's a behavioral component. The idea of usage, repetition until it becomes habitual. It's ingrained into you so it becomes second nature, virtually automatic. It has become habitual for me to turn my head from side to side, looking both ways before starting off on my motorcycle, because the course taught me to do that. It's a routine that helps with safety. It has become habitual for me when driving a car to begin signaling well before I slow down to make a turn. That's just a good habit, practiced now about five decades. Oh, my number one driving, this is a bonus, not in my script. My number one car driving tip is shoulder checking. I cannot tell you how many times shoulder checking before I change lanes has saved me an accident. That's a big blind spot. Has our faith life become so ingrained to those habitual kind of actions? The New Testament emphasizes that it takes more than just mere belief or philosophical agreement to be a Christian. We like to park on Romans 10.9 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's very true, but real belief in the biblical sense has a component of commitment having entrusted yourself completely, such that it determines your actions. You might suppose in our secular atheistic culture that believing in God alone sets you apart. Well, the Apostle James has news for us, James 2.19. You believe that there is one God? Good! Even the demons believe that and shudder. 
I hope your spirituality is a bit above the same grade as the devil. The Great Commission is that we make disciples. This involves evangelism, sharing the good news about Jesus, but there's more than that. Dawson Trotman was founder of the Christian campus ministry called The Navigators. In his classic booklet, Born to Reproduce, he tells the following story. One day years ago, I was driving my little Model T Ford, I guess it was a few years ago, and saw a young man walking down the street. I stopped and picked him up. As he got into the car, he swore and said, it's sure tough to get a ride. I never hear a man take my Savior's name in vain, but what my heart aches. I reached into my pocket for a tract and said, lad, read this. He looked up at me and said, haven't I seen you somewhere before? I looked at him closely. He looked like someone I should know. We figured out that we had met the year before on the same road. He was on his way to a golf course to caddy when I picked him up. He had gotten into my car and had started out the same way with the name Jesus Christ. I had taken exception to his use of that name and had opened up the New Testament and shown him the way of salvation. He had accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. In parting, I had given him Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God bless you, son. Read this, I said, and sped on my merry way. A year later, there was no more evidence of the new birth and the new creature in this boy than if he had never heard of Jesus Christ. End quote. Trotman concluded he needed to follow up more with those who were converted on hearing the gospel. A disciple is more than a person who is accepted in principle or in theory that Jesus is Lord and Savior. A disciple is someone who's actually following Jesus, walking with their Savior intentionally day by day. What was that Jesus added in the Great Commission after baptizing people? and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Hmm. The Greek verb translated observe or obey means literally to keep, observe, watch, hold fast. When that cloud bank rolled in from the lake late Tuesday afternoon and the tornado warnings had gone out on her phone, it had my full attention. I was observing it carefully, looking for any funnel clouds. I was out on the deck at our house. I was watching the dust eddy squirt stirred up in the field across the road just west of us. Jesus wants us to give our full attention to keeping his commands. The disciple doesn't deceive themselves into thinking they're a Christian when they're really not. The disciple keeps looking intently into the Lord's instruction. Did you pay attention when you combed your hair in the mirror this morning? That is, if, unlike me, you actually had enough hair to comb. James 1, to 25 offers this comparison. Do not, merely deceive, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Looks intently, not forgetting but doing, observing, watching, keeping with one's full attention. 
Next section, lead by example. Through the centuries, Christians have attempted to explain the meaning of the cross in various ways. Early on, there was the Christus Victor theory. Athanasius said Jesus brought death to naught and was raised as a monument of victory over death and its corruption. Then there's what's known as the satisfaction theory. Anselm considered in view of us sinning against God, only God himself, Jesus, can make up for what we did. The punishment for the crime varied depending upon the status of the one sinned against. You're sinning against an infinite being, that's an infinite penalty. In this case, God's status was infinite, so we could never pay. Peter Abelard advanced the theory of atonement known as the moral exemplar. According to Abelard, when our sin made a loving relationship between God and humans impossible, God became human to demonstrate the depth of his love by his suffering and death. Observing the love of Jesus on the cross, we're motivated to reconcile with God and model our lives after Christ. Because of Christ's example, Abelard wrote, we cling both to him and to our neighbor by the indestructible bond of love. During the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin promoted what's known as the penal substitution theory of the atonement. Calvin presents God as an angry judge in a courtroom ready to punish human sinners. We could not escape the fearful judgment of God, Calvin explains, but God spares us death because the guilt which made us liable to punishment was transferred to the head of the Son of God. Now, each of these theories of the atonement has biblical backing and presents a different angle on the central truth of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus' own language at communion seems to support the penal substitution theory most closely as I see it. It's my body given for you, my my blood shed for you. But sometimes our modern sensibilities become offended by the whole notion of blood sacrifice and Calvin's portrayal of God as angry. So the moral exemplar theory has become popular amongst Protestants and Catholics, especially those who are more theologically liberal. Jesus did speak in terms that support us thinking of him as our example, without negating the importance of his substitutionary work on our behalf. He highlighted the pattern of servanthood in his life. Luke twenty-two twenty-seven. For who is greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. And then the night he washed the disciples' feet, he clearly made the point. John 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things... You will be blessed if you do them. Clearly, he wants to be our example and then some. Lord is a term of ownership and command. We owe obedient response to him. The Apostle Paul uses the language of example in describing how believers are to follow his pattern of living for Christ. 
1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Philippians 3.17. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Titus 2.7. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. Are we setting a good example in our own living patterns? Others are watching. If we have children around, they are impressionable and learn to copy what adults are doing. In the news this week was a four-year-old Australian musk duck named Ripper who learned to mimic human speech, specifically the words, you bloody fool. That's probably not how his handlers wished to go down in the annals of history. Next section, the imitation of Christ. Who are we mimicking? Are we any better than that duck? What are the words that come out of our mouth when things suddenly go wrong? When the teacup is jostled, what spills out is what it's filled with. Are we filled with Christ? Or does something less desirable spill out when we're upset? Amongst life's more pithy and profound sayings is this, wherever you go, there you are. Do you know who said that? Thomas Akempis, about 1420 A.D., in his book, The Imitation of Christ. A longer quote I'd like us to look at is this. Akempis wrote, It is good for us to have trials and troubles at times, so they often remind us that we are on probation and ought not to hope in any worldly thing. It is good for us sometimes to suffer contradiction, to be misjudged by men even though we do well and mean well. These things help us to be humble and shield us from vain glory. When to all outward appearances men give us no credit, when they do not think well of us, then we are more inclined to seek God who sees our hearts. Therefore, a man ought to root himself so firmly in God that he will not need the consolations of men. End quote. I like that last phrase, root himself so firmly in God. Where are we rooted? Do we seek our validation from other humans, comparing ourselves with them, judging by externals, or from him who gave himself for us and sees our hearts? When we're rooted firmly in God, we'll find ourselves representing Christ, imitating him, not caught in the trap of people-pleasing, bending to try to suit their ideas of what we should say or do. God doesn't want us to be copycats following the latest cultural trends, but to be originals, developing the special, unique gifts he's given us as individuals. Romans 12, 4-6. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. He goes on prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging, contributing to others' needs, leading, showing mercy, and so on. That duck imitated its handler. We have Christ to imitate, which is so much better. As we grow in Christ-likeness through the Holy Spirit, in many respects we grow to resemble him, to be like him in his goodness and kindness. The New Testament writers emphasized this imitating. 
1 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, Therefore I urge you to imitate me. Hebrews 6.12-13.7 We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Think back. Who spoke the good news about Jesus to you? Was it a Sunday school teacher, a youth leader, a neighbor? How are you imitating their faith now? And if you, by the way, if you like taking notes, and if you're online, our new platform here in chapel.online.church has the notes from the sermon there too, so you're welcome to copy and paste from there if you want any of those verse references. Next section, winch by inch, the come-along model. Making disciples who make disciples who make disciples is not a one-and-done deal. It needs to be continuous throughout one's life. Jesus wants us to be reproducing followers, and that doesn't happen overnight. As each of us can vouch, our own Christian walk has had its own struggles and setbacks and advances. We need others' encouragement, and to be encouraging our own Timothys as we've had our Barnabases keep pouring into our own lives. On the farm growing up, I sometimes watched my dad use what he called a come-along. How many of you have one of these somewhere on your property? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, It's a type of portable winch with a cable operated by a lever you swivel back and forth with your hand. It doesn't pull very fast, a couple of inches at a time, but fastened to a tree, it can pull a vehicle out of a mud hole, as I can attest more than once. So think about making disciples as like operating a come-along. In the way of Jesus' handbook, Pastor Phil writes, Discipling like raising children is a developmental process. It is iterative. You do it over and over. It is incremental, little by little. It is cumulative, add a little more each time. It is uneven and unpredictable, sometimes quick and sometimes slow, sometimes hot and sometimes cold, By the way, there's your word for the day, iterative. I like the image of a come-along winch. It's repetitive. You have to swing the lever back and forth, back and forth. It's incremental, inch by inch. It's cumulative. Gradually, the vehicle's tires emerge from the oozing mud with the sound of air being sucked in behind. It's flexible and portable. You never know where you're going to get stuck next. Making disciples has to be LOL, not laugh out loud, but life on life. Your faith rubs off on people as they see how you handle various situations. Pastor Phil notes, relationship, friendship is the most important factor in the transmission. Often the best discipling happens by inviting and including someone into your family's life. Because discipling is not about religious stuff, but about life. Following Jesus is a way of life. Hmm. Inviting and including someone. To me, that sounds like a come-along strategy. Making disciples isn't something confined to a church building or Sunday school classroom, but also happens in the school of hard knocks in the midst of everyday life. 
In Deuteronomy 6, the Lord told the Israelites how they were to teach their children to observe his commands. Deuteronomy 6, 7, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. A come-along strategy. Paul instructed his own protege, Timothy, to reproduce himself faith-wise by choosing some other men he could rub off on. 2 Timothy 2.2 And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Note there are four generations mentioned here. Paul, speaking in the presence of the many witnesses. Timothy, who heard him. The reliable men, Timothy, was to entrust Paul's teachings to, and the others that the reliable men would teach in turn, reproducing followers. By the way, happy Grandparents Day to those of you to whom it applies. Uh, Patty is up in Ottawa celebrating her first grandchild today, so planting a red oak. So she's uh, very happy to be celebrating it. Anyway, reproducing followers, different generations is what we're talking about. What does that look like for me? I'm not as bold as Dawson Trotman, though I try to be sensitive when I've picked up hitchhikers and watched for openings to spiritual conversation. I have had other people stay at my home for short periods in various life situations and transitions where they would see our own life patterns. Occasionally, I met with others for breakfast or coffee and donuts. Very often, I find myself visiting people in their homes or at hospital and there are opportunities for prayer and Bible reading. I've had the benefit of being part of a small group quite often where one both gives and receives. A wit once observed, showing up is 80% of life. Sometimes having a major impact on someone's life just involves showing up, going to them when they're in distress, inviting them to come alongside while you go on a mundane errand. But you've got to break out of your comfort bubble. It's paraclete work, like the Holy Spirit who comes alongside to help. Blessing over broadcasting. Does evangelism intimidate you? Do you find yourself tongue-tied when there's an opportunity to share your faith? Do you beat yourself up because you lack the nerve to talk to so-and-so about the gospel? You're not alone. These things force us to rely on our divine helper. And it's not a matter of one-size-fits-all as if you should use a memorized approach. Start where each person is at. Listen for how God may be already at work in their story. Sometimes it takes a person seven or more exposures to the gospel for it to really set in. Pastor Phil comments, depending on what it is, the level of relationship and trust might have to be really high. That is why the most important thing about discipling someone else is honesty about where we are in our journey with Jesus. Honesty is huge for other people. Without honesty, there can't be trust. Vulnerability, authenticity are important. Any canned presentation won't sound genuine. 
Yes, try to have some key promises memorized and have a general path to the cross, but try to put it in your own words in a way that speaks to that person's situation. The covenant players used to have a skit in which a person came along, bopped someone on the head with a newspaper and proclaiming, I am an evangelist. That should definitely not be our approach. How did Jesus introduce his message in the Sermon on the Mount? They're called Beatitudes. That's a fancy word for blessings. Matthew 5, 3 to 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. See the theme here? As we look for ways to be blessing others, opportunities for authentic witness will arise. We're already introducing God's kingdom into the situation by our action. In the way of Jesus' handbook. As we bless and then give Jesus the glory, this act of blessing becomes another piece of the puzzle in that other person's life. It can be incidental, a waiter, a stranger, etc. Or it can be intentional, a neighbor, a family member, a workmate, etc. But as the blessing happens and we give Jesus the glory, the pieces begin to fit together and there's growing intrigue about the things of Jesus. Live a life of blessing and you are always ready for God to use you. I am being sent by Jesus to bless others. Begin by asking God in the quiet of your inner being, who is the journeyer God is placing on my heart? Who does he bring to mind? Last section, the most underrated evangelistic tool. In closing, allow me to introduce to you the most underrated evangelistic tool around. No, it's not a gospel tract, although you can keep one in your car if that helps. It might not hurt to have some in your glove compartment. It's not a Gideon Bible, although these are helpful and are now being produced in the most interesting and beautiful formats. See some of the Gideon magazines they make available now. But what is the most underrated evangelistic tool? Well, you probably already have one in your kitchen cupboard. I'm talking about the lowly can opener. Yes, that's right. It can be a swing away or other version as long as it works. A can opener. Why? Because if you invite someone over spontaneously, probably the first thing you're going to think about is, what have I got for them to eat? Well, go with a can of soup. I particularly like Habitat split pea soup, you know, along with the little ham pieces in it. No, sorry, no product placement here. Uh, and a slice of bread. Or a can of beans or whatever else you have sitting back in that corner. Point is, it doesn't matter. Just do it. They're coming to see you, not your fancy spread. Invite them to come along, regardless of how your fridge is stocked. People surprisingly open up and share their private lives if you give them half a chance over a bowl of soup. A secret ingredient here is hospitality. Karen Maines wrote about the difference between hospitality and entertaining. Entertaining says, I want to impress you with my home, my clever decorating, my cooking. Hospitality, seeking to minister, says, This home is a gift from my master. I use it as he desires. Hospitality aims to serve. 
Entertaining puts things before people. Oh, as soon as I get the house finished, the living room decorated, my house cleaning done, then I'll start inviting people. Hospitality puts people first. No furniture? We'll eat on the floor. The decorating may never get done. Oh, come on, anyway. The house is a mess, but you're friends. Come home with us. Entertaining subtly declares, this home is mine, an expression of my personality. Look, please, and admire. Hospitality whispers, what is mine is yours. Doesn't that sound more like the echo of Jesus who gave all he had to bring us home with him eternally? Let's pray. Father God, you know how we struggle in this area of sharing our faith and making disciples. Thank you for those who have poured into our own lives, who spent time and coached us in our own spiritual journey. Thank you for your grace through our Barnabases and Pauls. Show us who you want to be, our Timothys, the precious lives we are now privileged to sow into in faith. And help us live lives that are examples, that others will want to imitate, lives that shine with your goodness and let your blessings